Hey, it's Phil from SpexCast, and I want to give a huge thank you to everyone who spoke with us at the Spaceport America Cup this summer. We're working on a few awesome episodes about the event, so stay tuned. Hello and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and I'll be your host today alongside TJ. Hello. And today we are speaking with Charles Beams, the CSO and Executive Chairman of York Space Systems, about their end-to-end approach to delivering payloads to orbit. SpexCast is brought to you by RIT Space Exploration, also known as SPECS, a student-faculty research group at the Rochester Institute of Technology. On this podcast, we delve into the technologies that make space exploration possible. You can learn more about SPECS and SpexCast at our website specs.rit.edu. Hi, Charles. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi. Thank you. I'm excited to be here and join you guys. Uh, to get started, can you tell us about York and what you do there? Sure. I'm, uh, my name is Chuck Beams. I am the executive chairman of, of York Space Systems, which means that uh, I, I'm the chairman of the board and, uh, and, and really set the overall uh, direction for the company and responsible for uh, ensuring the um, both the near-term investment and technology strategy and uh, the long-term business approach. Our basic model is that we are uh, what we actually manufacture is a spacecraft that is a, a, a very low-cost industrial-grade uh, spacecraft that that uh, is in a performance envelope to be able to do real missions, not just experiments, but real missions with, with very predictable uh, design life. And, uh, and we're able to offer at York uh, space systems overall an end-to-end capability unique to the, uh, the whole new space uh, environment. So other st- space startups tend to focus on one segment of the industry at a time, such as launch, um, spacecraft platforms themselves, or mission operations. So which segments does York operate in? Well, what we do is we have mission partners. So what we actually manufacture ourselves is the spacecraft platform. What we found out quickly as we've been building out our strategy is that what's really needed is an end-to-end capability. Obviously, we didn't want to repeat what other people do very well. So we have put together an enterprise system around which... We have, we have a mission operations center, for example, so we're able to, at any given time, we can fly six different cons- customers' constellations. It's very useful for uh, entrepreneurs, uh, new companies that are getting started that want to test out their concept with two or four satellites, for example, before they go into raising more uh, capital to, to build out their constellation um, the, in, on the government side. For experimental kind of payloads, they're very interested in doing that as well. On the launch side, we obviously don't do launch, but I'm very familiar, very familiar with the launch business, having run a, a launch company in the past. And um, what we we are being asked by many of our customers to do is to help them secure the right launch uh, system for them. And that's the right launch system for a customer is at the intersection of many things the amount of money they have, the urgency of their launch, um, and the complexity uh, that they're willing to live with. Uh, The one thing, what makes us unique in that way is that our platform can be launched on 
any number of different ones. It's, it's uniquely designed to be air launched or ground launched. And it can go on a single launch vehicle like the Rocket Lab Electron, for example. Or it can go on a ride chair uh, on an Esper ring on an Atlas V or on a Falcon 9 or even on the, uh, like a Vega, for example. From a business perspective, what advantages open up to York from owning the end-to-end -end process from hardware to on-orbit operations? Well, the, the advantage is really for our customer. We, 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 we've, just, we've done this in response to the customer need, which is for the, the future of really the whole small satellite revolution is about space data. And so the next generation of companies that want to become space, space operators are actually not space companies at all. They're data companies. But what they know is that they, they need certain data types in certain spectral regions or certain parts of the RF. And what they ideally would like is somebody that can just put together all the pieces that they need, um, including, for example, some, some customers. We haven't signed one on yet uh, as an actual contract, but we have, we've been approached by many that are even asking us to build their instrument for them. They tell us exactly what the instrument needs to perform. And then they ask us to con you know, contract for the development of that. That's not something we do yet, but it very well may be in, in, in the future. The re what makes York unique in that way is that our universal platform allows, with a very standard interface and very low cost, allows a lot of plug-and-play operations in the visible, all, all aspects of spectral and RF with high pointing accuracy. What are some of the challenges you run into by not specializing in just one segment? Well, we do specialize in spacecraft. There's, and that is our specialty. And that is the one thing that's unique about the whole space enterprise is that every segment has to talk to the spacecraft bus. And so really it's incumbent upon us to be to be to have the best bus, to have the lowest cost and the highest performance. We have to understand all other segments anyway. And that's why we, we, our customers logically just began asking us, hey, could you do this? Could you do that? And so we built uh, these, other, these other aspects. Every customer, not every customer uh, asks us to provide all, all uh, segments. Some, some of our customers only want us to build spacecraft. So they want, for example, 10 spacecraft. And we just build those 10 and we deliver to them deliver those to them. They integrate their own payload. Some customers want us to integrate their payload onto the, our spacecraft bus, and then we ship that to the launch site. So each customer has its differences, but every, all, every segment, whether it's ground, the, the, uh, the, the data links, the launch system, everything has to talk to the bus at any given time in its, in its history. And so we have to be the experts on these other things anyway, not in the detailed design, but in understanding their proper function and role in the overall uh, space enterprise. Overall, uh, new space in the space industry is trending towards larger constellations of small satellites in LEO and beyond. What is York doing to kind of anticipate the demand for this kind of space system architecture? Great question. Uh, there's, there's kind of two things going on simultaneously. There, there is the large constellations that are, that are being proposed and uh, uh, funding is, is, is being raised to build those out. For example, uh, OneWeb and there's others. Starlink, I think, is another. Um, that's interesting. And we'll see how that all plays out. 
But the really the the more interesting story that's going on that is largely unreported is that there's hundreds of entrepreneurs out there that have ideas and they're raising small amounts of money to propose new mega constellations, but they're not backed by billionaires. And so what they're doing is they're looking for inexpensive ways to test out their hypothesis. In other words, they have, let's say they have uh, indications from other research. Some, some of them are coming straight out of a university um, to a certain spectral region that they want to collect for a particular need. Um, or, they, or there's a, yeah, there's any number of different things. What they want to be able to do is, is put up two satellites um, and, and collect data against that, show that to uh, investors, and then, and then go from there. And that, to me, is the far more interesting thing. And what York brings to that is the ability to manufacture at rate uh, about today about 50 a year. Um, but our part of our not only is our spacecraft itself proprietary in its design, but so is our production uh, processes. We're able to make a, a single uh, 150 to 160 kilogram spacecraft in, uh, in, 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 in a matter of two days. And that, and that production facility, um, is, it, we, can, we can replicate that in many places that it's necessary. So we're in, we are out, simultaneously, we're in discussions for building out additional production facilities, frankly, all over the world. Uh, so the platform you're referring to is what's called your S-Class platform. Can you tell us more about it? Sure. It's, uh, again, like I said, it's, uh, the, the bus itself weighs about 65 kilograms, and it can handle a, a payload mass of 85 kilograms. Um, we have a standard, the S-Class, and then we have priced um, upgrades, if you will. Think of it when you're buying a, a, a car, a Toyota or something, you can get the base model or you can pay for upgrades. They all kind of, the cars all pretty much look the same, but the performance can be significantly different. Uh, in the case of there's memory upgrades you can do, there's power upgrades that can be done that are already paid for. Uh, they're just priced options. Uh, and they're very inexpensive, frankly. Um, so you're talking about everything from a, a base model is around a million dollars to uh, you know, a really loaded, if you will, uh, is, is, you know, maybe a million and a half with everything, all kinds of memory upgrades, power, and, and that's still one-tenth the price of our nearest competitor. So you advertise S-Class buses as being optimized for mass manufacture and call constellations specifically. What is different about this platform design that makes it better for constellations? Well, it's... For, uh, it's universal in its design. What do I mean by that? Uh, for one, it can be launched on any of the, the existing and planned launch vehicles. And you guys know I, I have a launch background. Uh, I started off as a, as a payload, as an instrument uh, engineer, but I, I, I was in the launch business for quite a number of years. And, uh, and those, each of those launch environments are very different, and not all spacecraft can, can go on all the different ones. Ours is designed to be able to handle the rough ride of a solid, pure solid ground launch like a Minotaur. It can go on a um, on an Esper ring where you have a lot of flexure out of you know in the moment arm. Um, it can also go in an air launch configuration where it has to do a high G uh, turn uh, before it goes vertical. Uh, and so that gives our customers a lot of flexibility. It allows them to compete 
the, the launch companies against each other to, for them to get the best value. The, the other universal aspect of it is, is that uh, we have a standard interface. We, we did the analysis up front to, to hit the sweet spot for not all requirements, but a, about 80% of the, of the standard requirements uh, that exist. Because of that, uh, we're able to offer a production model that meets the vast majority of next generation customers at a very low amortized cost. That's a pretty robust system, and to do it for low cost um, is is impressive. Um, when embarking on this goal for um, a robust satellite that's um, ready for mass production, was there anything about the process that surprised you? Well, what I can tell you what surprised me is that in, in, in unpacking this challenge was that we had never in the space, I've been in the space business for 30 years, we'd never approached design from the beginning this way. Because we, we, I, I grew up in the, you know, the military system where everything is about maximizing performance, you know, whether it was the Cold War or whatever. We never, we never considered in design optimizing for economy, for, for, for economic viability. That just wasn't because the government was paying the, 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 uh, the tab, right? And so, so we were not rewarded for taking costs out. We were rewarded, frankly, for, for, for more money being spent. And, uh, and this is a fundamental difference. This turns that equation completely upside down. Very similar, actually. The, the closest analogy in the space business is what Elon did of his own volition in launch. He made the decision that he was going to figure out a way to radically reduce the, the cost to, to, for launch. And he did that. And it's completely changed, as you guys know. It's completely changed the um, the uh, the math, if you will, that you know ULA and everybody else has to adapt to, uh, and that and we're doing the same thing, frankly, uh, for for small satellites. So you mentioned targeting about eighty percent of the capabilities that customers are most likely to want. Um, could you kind of go into more detail of what those specifically are? Is that specific electrical standards or data standards or power standards? or even deployable uh, abilities? It has to do with uh, uh, size, for example. Uh, CubeSats are great, but they're not very, they don't last very long, and they're actually very expensive to make because they're hand-built. So we wanted to, we wanted to target, uh, in launch, if you're gonna go in the smaller satellite business, um, you talk to uh, Peter Beck or any, any of the folks that are involved in that aspect of it, and they'll tell you that that the sweet spot for life cycle cost of small satellites for launch is about 150, 160 kilograms total because you, it's just the way the math works in terms of dollars per kilogram to Leo. Um, the, uh, so, I mean, those are, those are the big things. Um, the, uh, from, a, from, a, from a design standpoint, the power you know, advanced electronics require far less power than they did just t even 10, uh, 15 years ago. And solar cell efficiency has dramatically changed in the last 20 years. And so when you do all that analysis and you uh, do the day in the life simulations of satellites and performance and how much uh, data companies need the, the, the sweet spot they need to hit from a, from a dollars per image, if you will, 
um, you end up with uh, a, a spacecraft size of about 150 kilograms. You need about 100 watts continuous on orbit average with peaks of 200. There are certain um, uh, small set applications where they need a, a high peak power. Um, these are the active sensing types. And, uh, and so we have a, a, an upgrade, a 3000 watt power upgrade that's available uh, for those that need that. But though, again, those are only for uh, folks that have a high uh, power. There are some that are, that are, you know, they are exercising that option, but it's, there aren't many that do. And it's not much money. It's really just a question of whether they want to use that mass for that purpose. The market is evolving just as quickly as the startups that work to meet them. And in the past decade, we've seen monumental changes in the composition of the businesses in the space industry. For some background, you led the development of Stratolaunch at Vulcan Aerospace before coming to York, uh, which is the six-engine twin fuselage behemoth of an airplane uh, used to as part of an air launch platform to get spacecraft to LEO. In your view, what has changed in the last seven years since Vulcan was founded by Paul Allen in 2011? Well, you know, a lot's changed. Um, uh, for one thing, uh, a lot of investment money has, has gone into all aspects of, of the space business, the ground segment piece, spacecraft, and launch. Um, the, the economic, the real commercial economic viability of small satellites has finally arrived. In other words, without government subsidy, there are real businesses, very exciting businesses that can be built um, and, uh, and grown. Um, data, we, we are in the data era, right? It's where the knowledge, we have transitioned from the industrial age to the knowledge age, and data is the gold of that. It's, the, it's like the oil of the 20th century, data is the, the oil of the 21st century. And, uh, and so um, I, I personally think that most satellites are, with, so there will be some exceptions, but almost all satellites are going to be in low Earth orbit in another 10 years. All, most of the, 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 uh, the DOD and the intelligence community capability will all be in low Earth orbit. What does that mean? Well, it means they can be a lot smaller because they're much closer to Earth. That that means smaller, it's, it's a shorter design life. Um, a lot of uh, sat these LEO satellites are going to become more like personal computers and handhelds from the standpoint that people are going to want to upgrade them every two or three years anyway. So it, it changes the math on, on, on that end as well. Um, so it's, it's just an exciting time from that standpoint. Um, I, as far as air launch itself, I think there will be an enduring need for air launch. Uh, it, it's not always the most cost-effective way, but it is incredibly useful in LEO because you can get to any orbit virtually any time, launch above the weather and all that. So for the entrepreneur uh, and for certain uh, national security kind of applications, there's nothing quite like it. So have the market's needs changed even since 2011, uh, even since York was founded in just 2015? Well, the, a, a market by its very definition is always changing. Um, there's there are kind of needs of a market, but then there's also something. Another thing that doesn't get reported very often is that new markets are being created. And I'll give you an example. In, there was no need for an iPhone, right? 
there was a vision for something that would be really useful and would, would change the way people live their lives. I think that the, the, the LEO small satellite market is very akin to that. Um, different in that one person, it's not going to be one person for one, you know, LEO satellite, but very similar in other ways. Uh, and, um, and so from that standpoint, there's, there are many markets. I'll just give you an example of something to, to think about for the audience to think about. Uh, you know, when I was a lieutenant, we worked on something called uh, the Global Positioning System. And the user equipment, as it was then called, was about the size of a small desk. And, uh, and it, was, it was all about the Cold War, and that whole system was developed to survive and ensure uh, that if, if the Soviet Union were to attack the United States, we could guarantee them that we'd be able to deliver our weapons on, in Moscow. Nobody ever would have thought that something, and I can tell you because this is one of those things where I was there, no one would have ever thought that that thing we were working on was going to revolutionize uh, city transportation, right, which is Uber and Lyft, and, and there's others, and you know, smaller ones that are less known. Um, but it really, if you think about those two, they are nothing more than very clever space data apps. Um, the, the data itself is free because it's broadcast as, a, as the GPS timing signal. But as the cost of, of data approaches zero for other types of data, we're going to see very similar revolutions in things that, uh, frankly, we, we can't even conceive of today. I, I think a huge part is going to be in spectral sensing. Every, every year, um, Moore's Law continues. The price of these small satellites continues. Ours is about a million dollars. I would not be surprised that in, that in, um, you know, in a couple years' time, we've, we've, our, our price structure has dropped in half. Right, um, that because we are geared that way. Our manufacturing is geared toward to being highly adaptable to the next generation commercial processors and and commercial network technologies and and the artificial intelligence and machine learning stuff that is that is really revolutionizing data utility. Uh, so you brought up your your history with the Department of Defense. In your opinion, um, what can the DoD and commercial space learn from each other? That's a great question. Um, I would say that what what the, the the next generation space companies like ours are really already most of them are already doing is they're hiring folks. They're either being led by or being they're 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 being uh, led in certain departments like engineering from folks that have been come from the the, the legacy uh, defense space companies. Um, a lot of it's because this is exciting. This, the new space stuff is really exciting. Uh, and it's kind of a melding of the, the Silicon Valley sort of tech culture with the space culture. And uh, lots and lots of uh, students coming out of universities that are starting their own companies right out of school. Um, in fact, we've partnered with a few. Um, and uh, some of them are data companies. Some of them are, they have ideas for components um, to make, you know, propulsion systems, uh, reaction wheels, all the, some of the key avionics, some of the key subsystems on a, on a satellite. They have ideas on how to make them better and lighter and less expensive, whatever. And so it's, it's kind of its own whole new um, uh, entrepreneurial sort of 
wonderland, candidly, and it's, it's very exciting. The, the folks uh, like myself, they grew up in the old industry that are eager to just walk away from it because it's just a necessary in some ways, but uh, uh, very bureaucratic, very slow. Uh, it takes 10 to 15 years to, to make a satellite. Um, you know, a lot of us are just really excited about applying the, 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 um, the discipline that we learned in systems engineering, design, discipline, um, you know, going through the, 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 the various stages of design reviews and all that stuff, uh, learning from that, but applying that to something that where, you know, satellites go from not existing to on orbit in, in a matter of months instead of a decade. What kind of changes do you foresee government space kind of taking from the commercial sector? You mentioned, you know, people are leaving and, and innovating and that kind of stuff in commercial space. But do you think that they can bring those lessons back and learn and improve? I think they can. I think they can if they choose to in the near term. And, and there already are, like DARPA, for example, has a program called Blackjack, where they're looking to leverage some of these, uh, the first generation of mega constellations and, and that kind of a thing. And there's, there are others. There's Air Force Research Lab is doing some experimental work with these to see what kind of performance they can get from these small satellites. All very interesting and very exciting. What's going to happen, though, is that there's going gonna, gonna to be such a preponderance of them that they, will, they won't have a choice but to do it. Part of it is because, frankly, other countries in the world are doing it. Um, our, at York, our, our platform is, is not under export control. It's, that it's not an ITAR-restricted item. So we can, I mean, we can't, there are certain restrictions. We obviously can't sell it to uh, certain countries like North Korea or China, but we can, most countries in the world, we can export it to. And so a lot of countries in, in the world are very interested in buying them and becoming spacefaring for a very low capital expense. Uh, and having all kinds of, well, so that if, if you know, we're, we're a great company, but there, I'm sure there's lots of other great, uh, s you know, small sat companies out there. So if we're doing it, uh, and as you guys know, uh, space is becoming every, every week more and more of a military contested domain. So we have just like, just like the high seas became very much so in the, in the 18th and 19th centuries and air in the 20th century. Uh, and so, you know, we have smart people on, on the military side that are figuring that all out. Well, the way the enemy is going to be doing that is with small satellites, and the way to counter that is with small satellites. So, in a sense, it's just going to have to happen. So, from the earliest days of the space race, uh, space has kind of been dominated by a handful of countries, U.S., USSR, and even after 40 years, it's only spread to a relatively small handful. Um, you mentioned that you know other companies can get your technology and put satellites up. What do you kind of see? Uh, are there primary applications? Are they going to go through some of the steps that something like the U.S. went through uh, when developing their satellites, or are they going to go from like some very targeted applications that suit their needs? Great question. I, I think the opportunity will be there for them to leapfrog, much like China. Uh, for most of the country, never put in what was called POTS, plain old telephone system. They went straight to cellular. Uh, I think that a lot of nations, including African nations, Asian, all over Southeast Asia, will be able to leapfrog the decades uh, of work that, that the Soviet Union and the, the United States did 
through the Cold War, learn from that and, uh, and, and leapfrog directly into remote sensing, uh, for example, satellites that are eye-wateringly capable that 10 or 15 years ago uh, would have cost a billion dollars to build. And they didn't even know how, but that's about what the price tag would have been. And now they can just buy something like that for, for maybe 10 million. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. We are, we, are, we are truly at the beginning of something very transformational. Some people understand that in the national security realm, but I'd say still most don't realize it. So you've already talked about some of the commercial applications of space and reducing the barrier to access. What are some of the, what you predict to be the most surprising changes that consumers see? You mentioned Uber and Lyft as being a space data uh, application. Uh, what's something that, you know, they don't see day to day, but is closer to affecting their daily lives than they th- might think? The daily life. I would say probably the big thing will be behind the scenes that they, they, they are oblivious to will be a continuous optimization of the utility of resources and, and maximizing whether they're natural resources or, uh, or just supply constrained in some fashion uh, to, um, to, frankly, add value and lower the costs of living, which, which ultimately leads to a, an elevated standard of living. The, the costs associated with that will be captured in, not in this, just like you don't pay for uh, space when you, when, you, when you order an Uber, the, the cost is captured in the data that's either, that's bought and sold. So everything from uh, investments, for example, um, the, uh, there's a huge market. I, I, I do some consulting work with investment banking and, and that kind of thing. And a huge part of that are, are, is the futures trading. And so much of that depends upon waiting for a report that comes from the government. Well, guess what? In five or ten years, there will be no waiting for a, for a government report to tell you what you know, what the latest sort of prediction on crop yield is or where the retail sector's going or that kind of thing because that data will be collected privately and it will be bought and sold privately. And, uh, and that's going to that's gonna move major markets, hedge fund markets, all that kind of thing. Excellent. Um, so to round out this discussion, what is your vision for the future of the space business as a whole? In five to ten years, there will be thousands and thousands, maybe tens of thousands of satellites, small satellites, on orbit in LEO that will be providing data, either transmitting data or collecting data of types that we don't even, can't, you and I can't even conceive of today that will be remarkably valuable to the quality of life for people, everyday people walking down the street, driving their car, or uh, just just uh, you know making uh, simple decisions about uh, where to where to put their the ten percent out of each paycheck that they're investing for their retirement. Excellent. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, thanks a lot, Chuck. I did. I did as well. Thanks a lot. Have a great day, you guys. Share your thoughts and ideas with us on Twitter at ritspecs, Facebook.com/ritspecs. Or send an email to specscast at gmail.com. You can learn more about RIT space exploration and specscast at specs.rit.edu. 
Our music is by Nelson Scott. Find more at his website, thenelsonscott.com. <laughs>